the invitation to follow Jesus is not an invitation into a life of ease. It's not an invitation to a life free of difficulty or pain or grief or sorrow. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to a life that is filled to the brim with a resilient, defiant, inexhaustible joy. Uh, in Tolkien's uh, great work, The Lord of the Rings, there's a character named Gandalf. If you haven't read the books or seen the movies, he's a fantastic character, one of my favorites. And uh, Tolkien, in his description of Gandalf, he says, when first looking at him, one would notice only weathered lines of sorrow on his face, but looking more intently, you would observe that under all there was a great joy and a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. And Gandalf in the book is a picture of Christ. And last week we talked about the fact that there is no one on planet earth, no one has ever lived that is more filled with joy than the person of Jesus. And in John 15, 11, Jesus looks at his disciples and he, he says this, he says, I've told you all these things, I've instructed you in all of these ways so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Another translation says that Jesus told his disciples these things so that they may be as happy as he is. So Jesus has a joy that is available to us. There is a joy that is available to every single follower of Christ. And there is a joy available to every human being in the person of Christ. And before we jump in, I need to dig into one thing that we mentioned last week. I want to dig into a little bit more. We, we said this, biblical joy does not mean pretending that everything is okay when it isn't. Right? When we're talking about joy, we're not talking about pretending that you're happy when you're not. Or pretending that everything is okay when it's not. And I recognize that doing a series on joy during the holiday season, for some of us, it's fine. And for others of us, it's incredibly problematic. Uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness found in a recent study that 64% of people who are struggling with depression or anxiety already found that the holiday season made their conditions worse. One of the respondents in the study wrote in and said this, the pressure to be joyful or social is tenfold during the holiday season, especially when Rob does a series on joy. So hear me, we're not talking about pretending to be joyful or faking happiness. If you are here, the reality is Jesus does have the power to set us free from anxiety and depression, but sometimes we, we wrestle with these things for a prolonged season, and if you're there, it can be one of the most debilitating and, and loneliest places to be. And it's, it's one of the most difficult places to be because you don't know uh, when there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. And this is, I just want to address this because this is incredibly common during the holiday season. You know, a few weeks back, uh, a friend of mine got together and we ended up sharing about different points in our own lives, in our own journey years ago where it was so dark for so long and so lonely for so long that there were moments where we even entertained the idea that maybe this world is better off without us in it. And actually thought about that and entertained the idea. 
that the only real solution to being trapped and isolated and, and being in this place of darkness or depression or filled with anxiety and fear for so long that the only real way out was suicide. I've been there. I, I know what that's like. And extremely different circumstances, but for each of us, we believe that this world would be better off without us in it or that it was the only way to escape. And, and here's the deal. We, we lost hope each of us, in very different life circumstances, lost hope that life would ever get better. And the reality is, it did get better. It did get better. It got a lot better. But when you're in it, it's very hard to believe that that's even a possibility. And so for, for each of us, individually, we brought somebody into the story that was playing out in our own minds. We confessed to people that we trusted. We brought them into that, that, those thoughts and feelings to a few trusted people. Uh, individually, we brought those things to God in community with others, and God saw us through to the other side of it. Thankfully, neither of us are there anymore, and it's been quite some time. But here, I, I share that with you to say this. If you are there, if you can relate to that, I want you to know a couple things. Number one, you are not alone. You're not alone. It's really tempting to believe that you are, but you're not. And you're going to be tempted in the middle of a season like that to isolate from other people. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. This is what the church exists for. There's men's ministry, women's ministry. There's life groups. There's soul care. There's all kinds of opportunity for you to walk with people who want to know you and love you through the most difficult seasons of life. You are not alone. You're not alone. And even though you can't see it today... There are much, much better days ahead because Jesus is currently at work in ways that you cannot even imagine. You can't see it, but he's at work. And the, the third thing I want to tell you is this. Tell somebody. If you are entertaining some ideas that you'd rather not be thinking about, that are scaring you, tell somebody. Bring somebody you can trust into your situation. And if you don't know who to tell, you can come talk to me. Come talk to our pastoral staff. This is what the church is here for. In fact, that there are some resources that are available to you here, and I want to invite you, if that's you, if you can relate to that, reach out to care at gracechapel.net and bring somebody into your story. These guys have walked through situation after situation like this. You're not alone. This is not uncommon, especially during the holiday season. And so when we're talking about joy, I just need to say up front, we're not talking about pretending or faking that we're happy when we're not. We're not talking about pretending that we're joyful when our life is falling apart. Everybody with me? Okay. So if you're in a dark place, I, I just, I want you to know the world is better with you in it. We need what God has put in you. Amen, somebody. So we're not talking about pretending. We're not talking about faking joyfulness because there's pressure to be joyful in the holiday season, okay? And as we said last week, biblical joy, it's not ignorance to the problems of the world, and it's not ignorance of just the, the normal struggles of everyday life. But it is a deep knowing that behind all the problems, behind all the pain, there is a redeemer who is at work in ways that we cannot currently comprehend. 
A believer's joy begins with a deep trust in the promise that one day, every single follower of Christ is gonna be caught up in a torrent of joy that we cannot currently comprehend or imagine, and that there is a measure of that joy that that is available to every single one of us right here and right now. So if you missed last week, I strongly want to encourage you to go back and watch it. We laid a biblical foundation for joy and a resilient joy, an inexhaustible joy, and it's setting the foundation for what we're talking about, not only today, but through the rest of the Christmas season. Now today, we're talking about how we build our capacity for joy, how we build our ability to live in the joy that God has made available to us. Uh, uh, This is fascinating. Jonathan Grant, he wrote this. He says, neurologists have shown that while most brain development stops sometime in childhood, the brain's joy center, located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex, is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. Isn't that fascinating? Dr. James Friesen, he writes this, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. Joy guides you to act like yourself. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. It is the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food, sexual impulses, terror, and rage. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the deficit. Your brain has a joy center and you can increase its capacity for joy. (laughs) From now on, when my kids catch me reading the Bible or writing in my journal, I'm, I'm just gonna say it's no big deal, guys. I'm just giving my right orbital prefrontal cortex a little workout. You're welcome to join me. So you can cultivate it, you can exercise it, you can develop it, you can grow it, or you can starve it. You can deprive it and unintentionally decrease your brain's capacity for joy. Henry Nowen, he wrote this, he says, joy is essential to the spiritual life. Whatever we may think of or say about God, when we are not joyful, Our thoughts and our words cannot bear fruit. Think about that for a second. If you are not living in the joy that God has made available to you, what Nowen is saying is that you are incapable of being somebody that bears the fruit of Christ, of making an eternal impact in the world. He says joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. Richard Foster wrote this, he says, joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And he says, often I'm inclined to think that joy is the motor, the thing that keeps everything else going. We cannot continue long in anything without it. So neuroscientists like Friesen and Grant and Christian contemplatives like Nowen and Foster and many others, they're all observing what God has hardwired into human beings from the very beginning. The reality is this, you and I are not victims of our genetics and we are not victims of our circumstances. You and I, we've been endowed by our creator to live a life filled to the brim with joy. 
every person in the room, every person watching online today, you and I have the capacity for joy and the invitation from God is for us to cultivate it and live in it. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we increase our capacity for defiant, resilient, exuberant, inexhaustible joy? Anybody want that? I want some of that. Okay, how do we get there? Philippians chapter four, if you brought your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter four, starting in verse four, the apostle Paul says this. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Thank you, always. Not, not sometimes, not when you can muster it, all the time, rejoice. And just in case we forgot it, he says, again, I'll say rejoice. And the word rejoice literally means to throw a party. It means to throw a party. Christians ought to be the best party throwers on the planet. Okay, it is the verb of happiness. It's literally to joy in the Lord, to make yourself happy in God. And it's not, well, if you can manage it from time to time. Or if you can muster it, be happy in God. No, it's a command, do it. Be celebratory, rejoice, joy in the Lord, throw a party. But how? If we're not faking it, it's not fake until you make it. So if we're not faking, if we're not pretending, how do we do this? How do we get there? Keep reading. Philippians 4, verse 6. One of the most fr frustrating verses in the entire Bible. Do not be anxious about anything. But I love the way that the King James reads it. It says, be careful for nothing. Be careful for nothing. Some of you are careful about everything. Some of us are careful for everything. Is this not a perfect description of the world that we're living in right now? Of the pressure that we feel to care about everything? The reality is you only have so many cares to give. Right, The world tells us that we're supposed to be full of care about everything. We're supposed to be outraged by this, offended by that, fearful of all kinds of things that you and I have absolutely zero control over. No wonder why the United States of America is in a mental health crisis right now. We're supposed to care about everything, be concerned about everything, be informed about everything. Right, you are a finite, limited human being. You cannot care about everything. The world says, have care. Be concerned about all things. And God says, be careful for nothing. Be concerned about nothing. That's what God says. In fact, look what Jesus tells us. He says, in, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Jesus is literally telling us have no concern for your life at all. Why? In verse 32, he says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them all. But do what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Followers of Jesus are commanded to be carefree. 
And yet what I have found in almost 20 years of following Jesus and being a part of his body is most often we are the most uptight, fearful, sensitive, offendable people on the planet. It is mind-boggling to me. I am outraged by how outraged we are about things. And Jesus invites us to live free of care, free of concern. And if this concept is foreign to you, which it likely is most of us, it's an invitation to grow in living a carefree, joyful life. See, when you look at the life of Jesus, when you read through the Gospels, there's not a single instance of Jesus coming unhinged or being outraged or offended. Well, Rob, he does flip tables. Yes, he does. And he flips tables as an act of justice. It's not like he emotionally has lost control. He is doing it as an act of justice. And in fact, if you think about this, he endured wrongful incrimination and crucifixion without losing any ounce of restraint or self-control. He never comes unhinged. He never retaliates. He is filled with grief and anguish, but he's never filled with panic. He's never outraged. He never comes unhinged. He is unoffendable. And yet, when you look out at all the things that Christians are outraged about, or panicked about, or fearful about, or offended about, it, it just makes me wonder, who is it that we are actually following? Because if you are following Jesus, your life ought to reflect the character of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the restraint of Jesus, the joy of Jesus, the ease of Jesus, the pace at which Jesus lived. See, when you have joy in God, you gain something that the world cannot touch. You gain something that the world cannot take from you. The devil can't use it. The world cannot monetize it. Everybody wants it but can't seem to find it. And God is looking at followers of Jesus saying, you already have it. It's available to you. Just come and get some. I have joy for you. Joy unending. It's available to you now. And what the world needs more than anything else is for followers of Jesus to live in the joy that God has made available to them. Because when they see you and I having joy, resilient joy, defiant joy, rejoicing and celebrating in the midst of really difficult circumstances, they're going to look at you and go, what is it that you have that I don't have? What, what gives you the power to rejoice even when the world is falling apart? When your life is, in this situation, how in the world can you have joy? Well, let me tell you, his name is Jesus. What the world needs is for God's people to be carefree, joyful people. It doesn't mean you're uninformed. It doesn't mean you don't know what's going on in the world. It just means in the midst of being informed about all that's wrong with the world, you have peace because you trust your Father in heaven. Because you know he's in control. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Paul continues, he says, but in everything, not in some things, in everything, 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Everything you face, bring it to God. And he says, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, this is fascinating. This passage, what Paul is telling us, this, this is a process for how we learn to let go of outcomes. It's about relinquishing control and recognizing that control is an illusion. It's about relinquishing the illusion of control. It's a reminder that ultimately you and I are not in charge. That there are an infinite number of situations and circumstances that are outside of our ability to control, influence, and manage. And if that fills you with more anxiety, you're welcome. And God invites you to bring those things to him. Because ultimately, yes, there are an infinite number of things that we cannot control or manage or influence. But we know who can control and influence and manage an infinite number of situations and circumstances. See, even though we're not the ones calling the shots, we can trust that no matter what comes our way, here's the beautiful reality. There is not a single thing that comes your way that will separate you from the love of God that is available to you in Christ Jesus. Not a single thing. It doesn't matter what circumstances are. It doesn't matter what unfolds in the world. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That allows you to live a carefree, joyful life, no matter what you face. And see, letting go of outcomes, success in the kingdom of God is not about the outcomes. It has nothing to do with the outcomes. Success in the kingdom of God is about faithful obedience to Jesus no matter what the outcomes are. It's about obeying in the moment regardless of how difficult it is and there is a joy to your obedience. When you obey Jesus, there is a level of confidence that God fills you with knowing that you're living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. It allows you to live a carefree, joy-filled life. See, our job is to obey and leave the outcomes up to God. And so often we're caught up in trying to manage the outcomes. We think, oh, well, if I do this, then this will happen. But if I do this this way, it doesn't mean don't use wisdom. It just means obey no matter the cost. Obey no matter what it costs you and leave the outcomes up to God. And when you trust God, see, the peace of God, it says it surpasses understanding. You know what that means? It means that people can't understand it. Brilliant, I know. It, it, it means that there are gonna be people that are trying to understand why you can have peace in the midst of the difficulties of life. And they won't be able to. And they'll try. And they'll say, well, the reason why you have peace is because you're ignorant. <laughs> or because you're uninformed. And you're uninformed and therefore you're irresponsible. To which you can just look at them and say, okay, and go on your merry way. What are they gonna do? They won't know what to do with you. you. People can say anything they want about you and if you have this trust, this joy in the Lord, they can't affect you. People can't affect your joy. If you have that resilient joy, people can say about you whatever they want and you will not lose your joy. And you can just look at somebody who says, something, oh, you're, you have peace because you're uninformed. Okay, and move on. They wouldn't know what to do with you. Doesn't that sound great? 
That just sounds freeing to me. Okay. Paul continues. He says this in Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers. Okay, whatever is underlined here, I want you guys to say out loud with me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you are a miserable person, it's likely not because your life is miserable, but because the focus of your life is on miserable things. It literally takes no effort to think about negative things. Like you don't wake up in the morning and go, well, let me just set aside about 20 minutes and I'm gonna think about all the things that are going horrible in my life. It's really gonna help my day. No, you wake up and those things smack you in the face. They're right here as soon as you wake up in the morning. Right? You don't ever wake up and discipline yourself to think about the negative. It just happens naturally. It is so easy to be a miserable person. It is so easy to be a grump. Especially in the morning if you're like me. And literally everything in our world is designed to make you discontent with your life. Everything. Every, every marketing campaign, every ad, everything is designed to make you discontent with your current circumstances. But what, what does Paul say? Quit lit, letting what is wrong with the world or what is wrong with your life or your circumstances drag you along with it. Instead, do what? Meditate on what is true, what is honorable, what is joy, uh, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. In other words, discipline yourself to find the good in your life Fix your mind on it and thank God for it because if it's good, it came from God. And, and when we pay attention to everything that is good and right and true in God, over time, we become more and more joyful people. And if we don't do that, we become more and more grumpy. This is why some people, if you'll notice this, as they age, they become more and more carefree, more and more selfless, more loving, more generous, more gracious, more joyful, more kind. And others, and some of you are on this path right now, no elbows being thrown, are becoming grumpier. Some of you are more crotchety than you've ever been. I don't even know if it's okay to say that word in church, but I just did it. <laughs> some of you are becoming more sensitive or quick-tempered or critical or negative, offend offendable. You have no resilience about you because you are following the ways of the world and not the ways of Jesus. You become like what you give your attention to. So here's the question for you. How much time are you spending thinking about what is good, what is right, what is joyful, what is pleasant, what is pleasing to God, what is praiseworthy, what is excellent, what is, what is praiseworthy? How much time do you spend thinking about what is good in your life? Are you overwhelmed with God's goodness in your life? And it doesn't matter what circumstances you find yourself in. You can find the good if you work at it. And see, the discipline of celebration, as Richard Foster calls it, is an act of defiance. It's an act of defiance against the world that is set on misery and self-destruction. Celebration, rejoicing, joy. And what we see in Philippians 4 is a prescription for increasing our capacity 
for joy, building our joy. And look how he ends. He says this in verse nine. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. I've modeled all this for you. He says, practice these things. Do them. Well, just listen to them. Do them. And the God of peace will be with you. What will happen if you practice these things? The God of shalom. The, the God of human flourishing will be with you. The God of peace. The God of joy will be with you. Now, Richard Foster in his great work, uh, The Celebration of Discipline, he gives a bunch of different ways to practice this and to increase our capacity for joy. I'm gonna go through a quick list. I've, I've kind of reframed a, a couple of them, but he, here's what they are. Uh, number one, a way to increase your capacity for joy is through music, dancing, and singing. Now, I can't dance, okay? I can, I can move a little. If, uh, if I really get excited during worship, you know, I might get a little bounce going. And that's basically what I got. But some of y'all can dance. Risa, you make me so happy when you dance. Like, I seriously, I'm just, it is inspiring. It just lights me up seeing you worship the Lord through dancing. Some of you guys can dance. And it's biblical. Psalm 149, Psalm 150, they talk about it. King David dances before the Lord in his underwear. Now, we're not gonna implement that practice here on Sunday mornings. We don't wanna scar the children, so. But dancing is biblical. Music and singing, or for some of us, it's called noise making. That's why scripture tells us to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, because for some of us, that's all you've got. And it still counts. Number two, humor and laughing. Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine. A happy heart is healing for the soul. It's where we get our old adage that uh, laughter is the best medicine. Now, get this. Research shows that children laugh uh, 400 times a day. Adults, on average, laugh only about 15 times a day. Some of you only once. And that was it. You're welcome. <laughs> Number three, reminiscing and storytelling. There is a reason why the Bible is told in story form. People are storying creatures. We think in stories. We live in stories. We are a part of a grand story that God is writing. We, we, we love stories. We get lost in stories. And the Bible is the story of God and his creation. And Reminiscing that there's some stories in my family that never get old, and, and every time our extended family, we get together, we tell, we tell, I mean, pretty much the same stories every time, and we laugh just as hard as the first time we've heard it. There's one story in particular. Um, uh, my mother-in-law, her name is Winnie. Sorry, Winnie. Um, she couldn't open the back door to her house one time. Misty was about five years old. And she opens it a little bit, and it won't go the rest of the way. And for whatever reason... She thought that there was a robber on the other side of the door holding the door shut. And she just has this panic look on her face and she grabs Misty and they just go sprinting. Now what's funny about this is they just come, came from a really fancy lunch. She was in a full length gown and she's sprinting and there's a hedge and she like dives <laughs> over the hedge 
and from the way I understand it, she sort of does this like tuck and roll and then gets back up and they keep running. Just that image in my head is the best. It's just fantastic. Turns out it wasn't a robber, it was a coat hanger on the door. But every time we get together, we tell this story. It's amazing. Okay, number four, festivals and holidays. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. We have the celebration of Christmas right around the corner. And one of the ways that our family is celebrating starting on December 1st is every day uh, throughout the Christmas season, we're gonna either start our day or end our day by reading through the different aspects of the incarnation just as a way to get our minds and hearts fixed on the goodness of God and the beauty around the incarnation of Christ. We have our own traditions. I'm sure many of you have your own traditions that you created in your families. And even as a church, we have our Christmas tree lighting coming up on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night. And uh, look, th this is one of the things that God invites Christians to do, followers of Jesus to do, is to gather together and celebrate and rejoice and be a family, to actually enjoy one another and enjoy God. And there's reason for us to celebrate. That's why we're gonna have hot chocolate and cookies and we're gonna sing carols and we're gonna count down for the lighting of the tree and there's gonna be many ponies that I'm sure someone's gonna try to ride. It's gonna be awesome and it's a beautiful tradition that we look forward to every year. Number five, feasts and meals. And somebody said amen. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Why? Because he was always breaking bread with people that according to the uptight religious people were the wrong people. My, my brother-in-law, Jason, and I, we went on a, a trip to Wyoming last summer. Uh, Jimmy was there, a handful of other pastors and, and leaders in the church in our area. And before our first dinner there, uh, the chef, he, he came out, he's got an incredible story, uh, he was homeless for a time, and God has redeemed him and rescued him, and now he, he, he just cooks this amazing food. So he comes out, and he's given this talk, he's given this devotional thought on, basically, when he prepares the meal, he prepares it uh, just praying to God that, that we would enjoy it as worship unto the Lord, because God created us to enjoy food. And as the chef is talking, I look over at Jason, and I just see this tear coming down his cheek. And I look at him and go, bro, are you crying? He goes, yeah, it's just so beautiful. That's what a good meal can do. It can bring grown men to tears. All right, number six, gratitude and thanksgiving. In fact, uh, we have a resource available for you today. We created this a number of years ago um, to, to, to help us practice what we read in Philippians chapter four. It's our forget not Journal. It's based off of forget not all his benefits in the Psalms. And it's one way to grow in your ability to think on all that is right and good and pure and praiseworthy. And a digital copy is available for download through the QR code or you can download it on our website as well. Here's where we're going to end today. In a world that is filled with division and hatred and fear and offense and outrage. What might happen in your life if you relentlessly pursued God and relentlessly disciplined yourself to become a person of joy?
If you genuinely lived carefree, concern-free, because your trust in God was that strong, what would change in your life? Or if you think about a little bit more broadly, what if every single person in this room began to practice this? If we became a people of defiant, resilient, inexhaustible joy. I'm telling you, I know there's drama in every church. There would be a whole lot less drama. If we were people of joy, there would be people on the outside looking in going, what is it that you people have? I want to know what y'all have got. If we became people of joy, people of celebration, I'm pretty sure, if, it, if it's not just a few of us, but if it's hundreds of us, if we relentlessly pursued the joy of the Lord, we grew our trust in him and lived concern-free, not that we're uninformed about what's going on in the world, but that we trust God more than what we see happening around us. What would happen? I'm pretty sure it would change the world. Because 2,000 years ago, it did change the world. Because Jesus, in his mission that he first announced in the synagogue that day, he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. I've come to start a movement of joy. And it changed the course of human history. And today we're going to partake of communion together, not as some somber act of memorializing Christ's suffering, but as a joy-filled celebration of victory over death. A joyful celebration that God is a God that takes our sorrow and our mourning and turns it into dancing. He is a God that because he was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago, he takes the ashes, the broken pieces of our lives, and he makes something beautiful out of them. That gives us reason for celebration. He is a God that turns our sorrow into joy. And so I want to invite our elders and pastors and those serving communion to come forward and prepare the elements. And for those of you that are new to the church or aren't familiar with what communion is, if you're exploring faith, the bread represents the body of Christ that was pierced for our transgressions. And the cup symbolizes the blood of Christ that was poured out for us as Jesus was crucified on the cross. And here's the beautiful reality of the gospel. Jesus offered himself up completely, even unto death, so that you and I, so that we might be people of defiant, resilient, exuberant, inexhaustible joy. He gave up his joy so that you and I might have an eternal joy that will never fade away. That's the beautiful exchange in the gospel. And today, if you've yet to surrender your life to Christ, there is a joy available to you only in the person of Jesus. And if you want to learn more about what it looks like to give your life to Jesus, I would be thrilled to talk to you after the service. Or if you came with somebody, if somebody brought you today, I'm sure they would love to share with you as well. 
But if you haven't yet made that decision to give your life to Christ, I'm gonna invite you to forego communion this morning. This is an act of obedient worship for those that have decided to follow Jesus with their lives. But as you take the elements, I wanna invite you to hold on to them until the very end of the service. I'll come back up and lead us, and we'll partake collectively as the family of God together. Uh, the ushers will dismiss you row by row, and we'll partake in just a few moments. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the invitation to live with a resilient joy. God, thank you that neuroscientists are only discovering what you have hardwired into human beings from the very beginning, that there is no limit to how joyful we can become. We can continually grow our capacity for joy, even in the midst of the difficulties, the circumstances and storms of life. God, you've made joy available to us and you've made it available to us through the person of Jesus, through his sacrifice on our behalf. And so as we come to your table today, as we take the bread and we take the cup, God, would you help us to fix our eyes on you, to be overwhelmed by what you have done, filled with gratitude for what you have done, and the fact that in you, we can have joy everlasting. And God, may we have a taste of that joy here and now. Thank you, Lord. We celebrate you through communion today. In Jesus' name we pray, God's people said, amen. Go ahead and stand. The band is gonna lead us. The ushers will dismiss you row by row. Hold on to the bread and the cup until the very end.